Hi, I'm Benjamin Studebaker. Hi, I'm Edmund Wilson, and this is Political Theory 101. So today we're talking about the Frankfurt School. We're going to run the gamut. We're going to start early with Kirkheimer, Pollock, Korkheimer, Newman. We're going to run into the later Frankfurt School. We're going to do Adorno. We're going to do a little bit of Marcuse. We're going to do a little bit of Habermas. We're going to run the whole gamut here. And I'm not promising that we'll talk about everybody individually or give everybody a lot of individual time, but we're going to talk a little bit about how it got going and where it went. And along the way, we're going to talk about how capitalism changed and how changes in capitalism led to changes in states and changes in the ideas about the relationships between states and markets and between states and individuals, right? So to get started at the beginning of this, Frankfurt School really gets going in the 30s and 40s in reaction to the development during the 30s of these very, very active states, the Nazi state, of course, in Germany, and also Keynesian Keynesian states, increasingly interventionist states in the United States, in Britain. These states are intervening more and more heavily in the market, and they're doing things which prevent capitalism from developing in the direction which earlier Marxists had anticipated. As we discussed, a lot of Marxists thought, hey, imperialism is going to give rise to uh, this this big war in which it becomes manifestly obvious that capitalism is a problem, and then there's going to be revolutions, and we'll start in Russia because that's where we seem to have the most traction, and we'll spread it from there to Germany and France and Britain and the United States, right? But those revolutions don't happen. Instead, in those states, these new more powerful forms of polity come into being. And the question then is, well, why is it that things didn't work out the way the Marxists originally thought they would? And what on earth are these new states? And what are they doing to us? Uh, Those are the kind of animating questions here. And how can we reconfigure our understanding of Marxism to explain and make room for the new kinds of polities that are coming into being in the 30s. And I think it's important to note here at the beginning, before we dig too far into the weeds, it's important to talk a little bit about what the 30s were like and how the 30s are distinctive, because there are a lot of people who make hasty comparisons to the 30s. I mean, even myself, like six or seven years ago, I'd throw myself in that category. But the things that are different about the 30s and make them weird, right? Firstly, There is a collapse in capital mobility during the interwar period. The world wars disrupt the movement of capital, and there's also big tariffs that get enacted in response to the depression. And so this means that it's much harder for rich people to move themselves and their money around the world, right? Because they can't move around the world very easily, states have a lot more ability to compel them to do things with that money. States have more ability to take that money to use it to fight wars, or to use it to achieve new economic settlements that protect states from rising mass movements that are trying to cause trouble for them, right? So there's a lack of capital mobility. That 
has not happened since this era. Capital mobility has never been as heavily shackled as it was during the interwar and post-war eras. And the, one of the big changes in more recent decades is the opening up of capital mobility and it becoming very, very easy for rich people to move themselves and their money all over the world very fast. So that's one major factor. Another, of course, is the existence of the Soviet Union during this period. And not just the existence of the Soviet Union, but the widespread belief that the Soviet Union is a realistic alternative to capitalism, that it poses a genuine threat to capitalism, and that there are political movements in these countries that want those countries to become like the Soviet Union, and that those movements might prevail, have a non-zero chance of prevailing. So this creates this climate of fear for capital about their own countries becoming like the Soviet Union. And if they became like the Soviet Union, then of course the capitalists, because they can't move and can't get away, they'll be liquidated, their assets will be liquidated, they might be killed. So they are very, very fearful during this period of what happens if their state collapses into communism. Now, political actors are able to use this fact that there's widespread fear and a lack of mobility for the capitalists to force them to do things that they would not ordinarily do. Because the capitalists are scared for their lives and can't get away, they are willing to make all kinds of different concessions to the state during this period. And they are looking to the state to protect them. And because this gives the state a lot of leverage, so the state is able to say, well, yes, you'll be protected, but you have to give us these things so that we can buy off parts of the population so that those parts of the population will not support communism. And this forces the rich in these states to give huge amounts of resources to their states. And this facilitates eventually the construction of the welfare state, the post-war system, all of that stuff. So just bear in mind here that the Soviet Union is considered a real pressing threat in this period, and there's no capital mobility. There's also huge numbers of World War I vets living in Europe during this time who have you know, seen war and death and who grew up under non-democratic authoritarian regimes like the Kaiser Reich, Austria-Hungary, the Ottoman Empire. You know, even in France, if you think back to the Second Empire, there are lots of people still living in Europe who have li living memory of authoritarian regimes. A lot of them grew up and were young during those regimes. And people tend to be nostalgic about the regime that they grow up under and are young during. And so there's still a lot of, of people who have these kinds of feelings. And these people tend to have a lot of military skill because they served in the First World War, a lot of them, and are good at weapons, good at violence, and comfortable with it, right? So these are some things that our contemporary circumstance does not share with the 30s. The 30s are very distinctive in these ways, much younger populations too. We didn't have all the aging population that we now have. So you've got a much younger group of people, people who have seen violence, uh, people who are thinking that maybe the Soviet Union is a realistic alternative, uh, people who are uh, know that capital can't get away from them, know that it's trapped. So the state is able to use this state of affairs to increase very much its power and strength, right? Now, it's using that power and strength to defend the capitalists, but it's also extracting huge rents from those capitalists, huge amounts of money from those capitalists to pay for everything that it's doing to protect them, right? And it's able to use the fear of the capitalists to 
create these huge elaborate systems, right? And so this kind of befuddles the traditional relationship proposed by earlier Marxists between capitalism and the state, because it's not just straightforwardly the case that the state pursues the bourgeoisie's immediate economic interests, come what may, no matter what happens in a kind of stupid and singular way. Now the state is using the threat to the system to force capitalists to behave in ways which are against their immediate short-term economic interest. They're having to give up a lot of wealth and resources because they're afraid that the political situation will lead to their death if they don't do that, that they'll be killed, that they'll lose their stuff. Very peculiar state of affairs. And it leads to these giant monster states in the 30s, giant monster states. Right. So that's where the Frankfurt School really begins to enter in. And Edmund, you were talking before we got on about Newman and Behemoth. Mm. And the kind of frightening vision that Newman paints in Behemoth. You want to you want to say a little bit about that? Yeah, Franz Neumann is quite uh, unusual among the Frankfurt School theorists, and is regarded as somewhat of an outlier because while uh, some of the Frankfurt School theorists were emphasizing uh, the ways in which the authoritarian state had become um, a form of state capitalism. Uh, Franz Neumann was placing somewhat more emphasis on the ways in which the state was an expression of uh, a, a certain stage of uh, capitalism, uh, of monopoly capitalism, where I- instead of the state being some kind of extreme Hobbesian unity, uh, the state had become totally instrumentalized by the economic interests that it serves. And uh, as a result, Neumann's caricature of the, or, or perhaps not a caricature, uh, a representation, uh, whether one regards it as uh, accurate or not, uh, of the authoritarian state, um, particularly the Nazi state, is of a state that is, as he argued, a state that's not really a state, that lacks unity, that lacks the kind of unity that Hobbes imagined the modern state to have, and is instead is torn between competing factions as a result of the, uh, the anarchic tendencies in uh, market society itself. And so I think there's somewhat of a duality here between, on the one hand, the state as uh, the title of his work, um, Behemoth, suggests as a kind of um, uh, Hobbesian tyranny, uh, and the vision of the state as a kind of anarchy at the same time. And in this way, uh, Neumann's uh, characterization of the authoritarian state is of a state that is simultaneously a tyranny and an anarchy, uh, simultaneously uh, uh, extreme unity and a extreme disunity. Um, and I, I think this it can be traced back to, perhaps to synthesize uh, the, some of the early Frankfurt School theorists who placed different degrees of emphasis on um, 
profits versus political power, on law versus culture. Uh, some were reducing the state more to the economic factors, some to more of the political factors, others to more of the cultural factors. Uh, I, I think one way of synthesizing this is to explain the the state as the product of um, both the development of capitalist society and the development of the modern state. And the authoritarian state is where these things come together. And when the modern state is used by capitalist society in a big way, but also capitalist society projects itself onto the modern state so that the state becomes uh, purely an instrument of defending capital, but is also something that has a lot of power at the same time. Um, and I, this is, I think, perhaps one of the central questions of the early Frankfurt School, whether the state really is the driving factor here or whether we're getting a duality between uh, the state becoming very important um, to defend capital, but also capital projecting itself and its own values onto the state. Yeah. And of course, this is where we get this critique of instrumental reason, which is very important for the Frankfurt School, this idea that there's been a hollowing out of reason until we've been left only with the kind of reason which comes out of the market, this a utility maximizing reason, and that all other kinds of values are being shunted to the side. So in a sense, as the state has gotten bigger and more powerful, it's also gotten more and more dominated by the logic of the market. And therefore, it's become more and more uh, capitalist in the way that it thinks and behaves. And so even though the state during this period is to some degree using political and cultural factors to extract concessions from the bourgeoisie, it is also adopting increasingly a culture which reflects in a more thoroughgoing way the values of the bourgeoisie. Uh, and I, I think that there's something to that. I think that during this period, there is kind of a, a shift in, when we talk about Newman and Behemoth, there's this, on the one hand, stultifying unity, and on the other hand, this sharp disunity. And it, it, it's a kind of comment, I think, to a large degree on Carl Schmitt's view of the German state in the 30s. Because for Carl Schmitt, the state was possessed by a group of friends who defined themselves against a group of enemies, right? So there's a friend-enemy distinction, and therefore the state belongs to a group. Now, this means that because the state belongs to a group rather than... A, a group with thick cultural character, a group with a lot of um, a lot of commitments of varying kinds. It's harder for the unity of the state to represent the whole multitude of of the citizenry. Instead, the state belongs to a specific group and only to that group. And there are other people who are living in the state who don't quite fit into that group who become internal enemies of that state, right? Mm. And so you have a state which has the unity of being completely committed to that group and to that group set of values, but which has the disunity of internally constantly finding, identifying enemies within itself and fighting within itself and warring within itself. And for Hobbes, the state is supposed to put an end to that kind of internal conflict. It's not supposed to 
be a vehicle for finding and rooting out enemies. It's supposed to be a means by which all of the people in the in the multitude can be unified under one sovereign, right? So with Schmidt's vision, uh, Schmidt is imagining that you can have a kind of state that's built around a group of friends. But what Newman points out is that in, in practice, the result of this is a state which is possessed by a group, but only one group, because it's in the nature of capitalism to produce a marketplace of values, a lot of different kinds of values. As Weber put it, you know, many gods and demons, there's been, you know, or as Nietzsche put it, God is dead. The unity around value has collapsed. And because the unity around value has collapsed, there are now lots of different values. So if the state is going to be appendage to a particular group with a particular set of values, those values will necessarily negate many of the other values that are found within the society. And that means the people who adhere to those other values will become internal enemies and have to be rooted out. So to obtain the unity of having a state committed to a set of values, that necessarily implies a state which views many of the other people who live in it as enemies and therefore fights eternally within itself to identify and root out those enemies. And in that way, the state is totally unified and totally disunified at the same time. Hmm. Yeah. Right. And, and in this way, also, the old uh, early, you know, under, if we call, say, the 19th century, quintessentially early capitalism, the early capitalist narrative of the relationship between the state and autonomy, the state and freedom, has gone out the window. Because if you look at Weber, for instance, during that period, the state is supposed to create uh, this, this space where the individual can freely select among many different gods and demons to worship, many different values to adhere to. But the individual is supposed to have the maturity to recognize that it's civil society organizations in the state which create the space for that freedom. And so, therefore, there's freedom to select among plural values, but also those plural values have to have the maturity to continue to support the system which creates the freedom, right? And therefore, mm. there's this you know, Hegelian back and forth between civil society organizations and individuals, between the state and individuals. But in this period, that autonomy is lost because the state becomes possessed by a singular group, which yeah. is negating other groups in the society, and autonomy, insofar as it exists, it is just the autonomy of the group that possesses the state to use the power of the state to express its values, Yeah. right? So yeah. that group has autonomy as a group, but there's no longer individual autonomy to choose from among value sets. There's just the catharsis of the group expressing itself through exercise of pure power. And the way yeah. that that group then, therefore pursues its own unity and its own autonomy is through the demonizing, vilifying, and driving out of the enemy groups. And so the unity is constructed through the disunity. The peace, insofar as there is, there is peace, is constructed through warfare. Right. In, in this way, it's a kind of a cycle between the uh, two stages of Hobbes's story of the modern state, the state of nature, which is complete anarchy, and the institution of the Commonwealth, which is, I mean, what some would call complete tyranny, but what Hobbes would regard as a complete unity, um, which uh, transcends uh, I individual separateness. Um, but it seems that the way in which uh, this ends up happening in practice with the 20th century authoritarian state is a 
just a, a continuous cycle between uh, extreme unity and extreme disunity. Um, and yeah, in, in this way, anarchy and tyranny aren't incompatible. They might they make quite good bedfellows in the end. Right, right. You get this state which has merged together the dogmatism of the group's culture with the anarchy of the of the conflict among cultures. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, at the same time, having said that anarchy and tyranny are put together, they're not exactly balanced. And what is lost in the oscillation between anarchy and tyranny is a kind of balance. And one of the other um, outlying texts of the Frankfurt School is uh, Ernst Frankel's The Dual State, uh, a contribution to the theory of dictatorship, uh, which uh, Frankel wrote uh, partly while uh, in Nazi Germany in the 30s um, and finishing it um, outside, um, outside of Nazi Germany in, 1940, um, in 1941. Uh, Frankel made the argument that this state was a dual state, uh, that it was torn between uh, the normative state ruled by law and the prerogative state ruled by pure power. And um, Frankel makes this division um, partly by drawing on uh, some of the arguments which had been uh, developing throughout modernity. Uh, at one point, he even uh, draws on an argument that's uh, nearly uh, contemporaneous to Hobbes, um, where Frankel notes, more than 300 years ago, a similar demand was made in England. King James I, in his famous passage to the Star Chamber in 1616, declared that in political questions, the decision rested with the crown and not with the courts. Encroach not upon the prerogative of the crown, James I said, if there fall out a question that concerns my prerogative or mastery of the state, deal not with it till you consult with the king or his council or both, for they are transcendent matters. As for the absolute prerogative of the crown, that is no subject for the tongue of a lawyer, nor is it lawful to be disputed. It is atheism and blasphemy to dispute what God can do. So it is presumption and high contempt in a subject to dispute what a king can do, or to say that a king cannot do this or that. Frankel goes on to say, The straightforwardness of this message has scarcely been surpassed by any spokesman of the Third Reich. Yeah. And so Frankel seems to be saying that the state is torn between, on the one hand, this emphasis on law in the normative state, and on the other hand, this prerogative state, building on the notion of the prerogative of uh, um, of the monarch, um, that is completely, I mean, it, it completely tyrannical, um, and in a sense, it is a kind of anarchy. Um, but I mean, one interesting point is that for Hobbes, the sovereign is themselves in a state of nature. The, the, when the Commonwealth is created, the sovereign stays in a condition of um, complete liberty. 
And uh, I, and perhaps what Franco is saying is that the duality between the normative state of law and the prerogative state of power um, is a duality between extreme unity and extreme disunity, and it is the complete prerogative of the sovereign, um, who is, for Carl Schmitt, he who decides the exception to the law. Uh, it is precisely this liberty which is part and parcel of the anarchy um, of the tyrannical state. Um, and I think yeah. what, what makes capital willing to accept the Nazi state is that the legal stuff continues to apply in matters of property yes. and, and the market. But the cathartic power exercise reigns in the cultural sphere as a safety valve. Yeah, yes, this is yes that, that this is exactly Frankel's argument that the normative right. state exists for the uh, maintenance of, of the market, while the prerogative state is therefore, as you say, this aesthetic the, this aesthetic catharsis. Right, right. That's that's the duality. There is this in the cultural sphere. You will get catharsis, and you will get this cultural homogeneity where your culture is expressed to the exclusion of all others. But in the economic sphere, the market and its multiplicities will continue to reign. It ends up being a very puzzling uh, account of the authoritarian state that we get, because people often think of the authoritarian state as uh, the uh, condition in which the state was never more powerful. Now, the state might have never been more powerful, but at the same time, while its capacity may have been great, perhaps its autonomy was quite low because the state was captured by simultaneously by the need to maintain commerce and the need to maintain the culture that commerce created. So it torn between the um, commercial normative state and the cultural prerogative state. Uh, that the need to maintain a degree of authority for the maintenance of uh, the market um, and the complete liberty which uh, was demanded by the culture. Uh, though at the same time, this culture is explained in terms of the uh, class structure which the market produces, and the market itself is a kind of institutionalized anarchy. And so in a way, the story of tyranny is a story of adapting to anarchy. And this is precisely an extension of the story that we get in Hobbes, where the need for an all-powerful state is an expression of the fear of complete anarchy. But Yes, in, the state yeah. becomes strongest during periods when it is most under threat. The strengthening yes. happens most quickly during the most fragile moments. And so therefore, what the state then does with the power is heavily dictated by the need. Right, right. The state has massive capacity, but almost no autonomy whatsoever, because it's been completely Generally, captured. It, it, it goes the other way when the, state, uh, when the state isn't under threat, then these different groups go, well, why should we bother to comply? Why should we bother to go along with all this stuff? And you start to get more splintering and factioning and other kinds of, of conflict. It's when the state is facing the existential period that it becomes powerful. Once it overcomes that, its power inevitably wanes mm. as the factors which drove the different forces in society to turn to it are eliminated. So when the state succeeds in driving out the threats, 
it then begins to decline again. Right. So it either has capacity but no autonomy, or it has autonomy but no capacity. Mm. That's the yeah, choice. Yeah, and I think that I, I think that this is, of course, as we start to move forward, some of the stuff that eventually happens to the post-war state is it defeats all of the things that previously caused people to make it. Uh, it succeeds in overcoming the the things that terrified people. And as it succeeds in overcoming fascism and then communism uh, in the West, or uh, as it succeeds in doing those things, the impetus to continue to empower it goes away. Mm. I guess I would suggest, though, that the the state that we get after the, uh, the end of war, and particularly after the end of the post-war settlement, uh, from the 70s onwards, which is skipping a bit, um, it is a state that also has its autonomy quite strongly restricted. Um, and in the end, in the modern age, uh, we have states which either have no, we have, which have quite little capacity and little autonomy, or states like the authoritarian state, which has um, considerable capacity but no autonomy. In neither case does the state actually have much autonomy, because in both cases the state is adapting to the modern state, is adapting to the needs of capitalist society. Yeah, I don't think the state ever has a huge amount of autonomy, but sometimes it has a lot of power because people are scared and are turning to it. And other times it's weakened because people see no reason to listen. Right, right. So the, cho the choice, to revise what I earlier said, is uh, between, on the one hand, um, high capacity and no autonomy, or low autonomy and low capacity. Um, and so in neither cases does the state have autonomy. In one case, the state has capacity, but the only thing that it uses its capacity to achieve is the defense and legitimation of capitalism. Mm. And maybe for that reason, people tend to not follow, listen to the state so much when the state has succeeded in creating a, su such a high level of security that people are not afraid and can't be made afraid very easily. So perhaps, to use a contemporary example, the states where people don't follow coronavirus restrictions might be paradoxically stronger and healthier than the states where people do because in the states where people don't follow coronavirus restrictions, they, are not, they cannot be made sufficiently frightened to feel that the order is in any way threatened because the order to them seems so secure and so resolute. But in the places where the order seems more fragile, people will more readily grant powers to the state and turn to it. So the state that looks strongest is strongest because it's in the most vulnerable situation. Mm. Whereas the state which is more secure will look weak. Mm. Yeah. Yeah. Interesting paradox there. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. And I wonder if a lot of it has to do with the fact that the Marxist conception of capitalism, um, in orthodox terms, is as a system built on, on the market, um, therefore on trade as the selective pressure which determines which institutions survive and which don't, which, which classes are dominant and which classes aren't. Whereas with the rise of the authoritarian state, the selective pressure of warfare, which was regarded by some of the classical liberal 
uh, writers, perhaps such as Benjamin Constant, as something which is uh, long gone for the moderns who are commercial people. Um, and I guess what happens with the authoritarian state is that while war does seem to strengthen the state, um, at the same time, uh, war itself has become trade-like, and the state has become um, an expression of uh, the economic interests which it serves. So while historically war has been the mechanism of the return of politics, in the modern age, war is uh, able to be still instrumentalized for the needs of trade. And it goes Well, war is to, a threat yeah. to trade. War is a threat to trade. So you have to, you, you turn to the state so that war does not annihilate the trade, especially right. during a time when some of the combatants in the war are communist states, or you've got large numbers of people who might start a civil you know, revolution. Uh, war is very much a threat to trade. And because war is a threat to trade, uh, trade will agitate for the state to have more power when there is a threat of war mm. as a means of protecting trade from war. So the state will prepare for war to defend trade. And in the course of preparing for war, the state will, of course, to some degree, diminish the influence of trade because the utilitarian logic of war will overcome the utilitarian logic of trade when those things are placed alongside each other. But the thing that you share in both cases is instrumental reason. The state is still thinking in a pretty utilitarian way right. and in a pretty how can I defend the market way right. when it's thinking about warfare. Right, right. The, the, the trade logic is still underlying this. And I think what's happened is that... Because the trade logic, what you call the trade logic, is utilitarian thinking. It's right. utilitarian means ends instrumental reason. Right. And that's why, as we start to move to the middle theorists in this period, like Horkheimer and the end of reason, uh, or uh, Horkheimer and Adorno and Dialectic of Enlightenment, uh, we start to move into theorists who are thinking of instrumental reason as itself the problem. Mm. And we start to have these questions of can we find any way of reviving any other kind of reason? Because, of course, in the Nazi case, people are so bored of means ends reasoning about profits and about maximizing power, so bored of liberal and, and kind of power politics realist narratives, that they're willing to embrace anything, any other set of values, no matter how ridiculous or manifestly absurd or evil or terrible they might be, right? And you mm. see this in a lot of contemporary culture in this great constant emphasis that we've had increasingly on uh, you know, random humor or uh, existential humor, which is very dark and bleak and, and mocks the meaning of life. Uh, and a lot of this humor works through not following any kind of reasonable pattern, but just by disrupting tropes or subverting expectations. A lot of Culture since the 30s has, has gone in this direction of being very much about subverting for the sake of subversion, right? Mm. It becomes about challenging the dominance of this instrumental logic. 
But the challenges are not themselves part of substantive value sets which counter that in any meaningful way. They are just negations. Now, the Frankfurt School, I think, took a great interest not just in negating instrumental reason, but in trying to come up with some substantive alternative, some way to bring substantive reason back. Mm. And this they share with some of the non-Marxist German theorists of this period, people like Heidegger, who was looking for a new way of being in world. And of course, Heidegger will go on to influence Marcuse, who sometimes thinks of himself as a potentially a Heideggerian Marxist, right? Uh, you've got people like uh, Hannah Arendt, who, of course, was looking for a way to get out of both Marxism and capitalism, who was looking to find a way out of the logic of labor and work. Uh, you've got you know, Strauss, who's looking to go all the way back to the ancient Greeks to find some kind of bedrock source of real value in mm. uh, you know, the conception you know, in Plato's form of the good. All of these different German theorists during this period are trying to find some other source of value which can potentially serve as a as a realistic alternative to instrumental reason, to the point where Heidegger, of course, becomes a Nazi because he thinks that maybe the Nazis have some kind of alternative way of being in the world that might be fresh and new. Uh, you know, there's, uh, from all different parts of German politics, many, many different ways of trying to come up with something new, something new, mm. right? And the Marxists themselves are trying to think of what, what would substantive rationality look like? What kind of substantive rationality could obtain now? Yeah. And they know that it's a problem. They know that if you can't come up with some other kind of substance, either the instrumental will continue to win or it will kick up various forms of perverse irrationality that just cause suffering and, and horror. Yeah. Yeah. And don't. Yeah. And just cathartically express themselves through power exercise. Yeah. And, and don't do anything constructive. Yeah. And Ernst Frankel frames this as uh, the choice between substantial. Uh, irrationality and functional or technical or instrumental rationality. So we can't even have uh, substantial rationality in the authoritarian state for Frankel. It is purely uh, a polarity of instrumental rationality on the one hand and a perversion of substantial rationality or substantial irrationality. Uh, on the one hand, the uh, vulgar needs of the market, and on the other hand, the moralism of uh, or perversion of morality in bourgeois culture. And there isn't any way of having uh, true morality or having a way of um, having a political sphere that mediates between these two things, the political is, in a sense, lost um, because it is captured by economic or market instrumental rationality and uh, bourgeois aesthetic um, values. Yes, I'm so glad that you keep bringing Frankel in because Frankel is such a, a good theorist to think about in this context. Uh, and this issue, it's not just that, say, the Nazis or the fascists have irrational values. This is not just a critique which can be applied to the Nazis, but a critique which going forward can be applied to all of the values which come out of the bourgeoisie. And Nazi values come out of the bourgeoisie, the culture of the bourgeoisie. But those aren't the only values that can emerge that can play this kind of irrational role. Mm. Because 
rationality is exclusively uh, capitalist, all of the other kinds of values that are kicked up now manifest in a hyper-irrational way and are mainly motivated by kind of psychological catharsis. And this is where the Frankfurt School, it gradually starts to get more and more psychological in its emphasis as it starts to look at what kinds of psychological needs these new states are meeting so that they can continue to secure legitimacy, right? These states are, are giving people different forms of psychological relief from capitalism, right? And one of these forms of relief is to see their moral values reflected at them in cathartic ways through these exercises of cultural power, which don't really affect the capitalist system, but which are great at securing commitment to the state and therefore, since the state defends capitalism, commitment to capitalism, right? And you can think about almost any set of kind of popular moral fervor in the post-1930s, in the post-1930s Western world, any period where some set of values catches on and becomes this uh, dogma which you have to submit to or you're purged out, any of these values can play this functional role. And so it's not just, say, racist values or sexist values or, or the values of, of the Nazi regime. Uh, other values, which might seem superficially more attractive to us, can play the same role which those values played in the Nazi case. If those values become a vehicle for giving psychological catharsis, right? Mm. If those values become a vehicle for giving psychological catharsis, and that psychological catharsis protects capitalism because it is an alternative to capitalism, it's an alternative to actual change or actual change to the economic structure. Uh, then those values, no matter how benevolent they might seem to you, and it's worth bearing in mind that every set of these values seems very benevolent to the people who are gripped in them, uh, those values nonetheless become a means of sustaining the system because they are generating catharsis. Hmm. Right? And that could be you know, values which are even the polar opposite of Nazi values. If they're playing this role of buying space for capitalism and not delivering more substantive change, if the change is only in the cultural realm, in the realm where this exercise of pure power is uh, rendered acceptable. Right, right. And right? What's, what's lost is the political. Um, in the construction of a culture which is obsessed either by the individual or by the group, collectivity is totally lost. And so well, we the say political the political is lost. Is lost. But the attempt here is to get you to define the political with the realm where power runs rampant and not with the realm that is safeguarded in a rule of law system. Oh, right. right so right, the market right. is in the rule of law system and that's depoliticized. And you're supposed to identify as political the cultural struggle space where the cathartic exercise of power is rendered OK. Right. And what's kind of quite... Um radical about Marxism is saying that it's the economy that's political and culture isn't the domain where we should be really focusing our attention. Um, whereas, Or insofar yeah. as there's a focus on it, it's in service of affecting change in the economic space, right? Y yes, uh, yes. Th though but yeah, I, yeah. Think, I think that this, this emphasis on Frankl is very helpful because yeah. this duality of the legal zone, which is also the economic zone, which is also the depoliticized zone, and on the opposite side, the cultural space, which is where the catharsis is and where the morality is, 
right? Mm. Yeah. Now, yeah. There's a there's a there's going to be a move here as this emphasis on psychology becomes stronger in the Frankfurt School. Psychology as a discipline is a very individualistic discipline, right? Mm. And there's going to be a kind of there's a, a shift as the Nazi regime goes away. And we start to move into the 50s and 60s. The Frankfurt School is still active, of course, in the 50s and 60s. And the Frankfurt School takes this interest during this period in psychology and in uh, the stultifying culture of the post-war democratic state. So in the early Frankfurt School, Pollock speculates, well, if we could take this state capitalism and somehow put it under democracy, that might be a path forward. Right. By this later period, the Frankfurt School theorists are talking more about how the post-war system in the United States and in Britain, even though that system is uh, democratic, it's still heavily, heavily conformist. It's still got this fixed culture. Right. This very, very fixed, rigid culture. And that culture is a different culture and a different set of values from the Nazi values. But it performs a similar kind of role of having this state reflect this uniform culture back at citizens who feel very much part of that culture and therefore get catharsis from seeing the state reflecting that culture, right? And so for these later Frankfurt School theorists, the rise of individualism looks like a potentially emancipatory thing because individualism challenges the cultural hegemony and therefore, because the state is constructing its legitimacy through perpetuating a cultural hegemony that it cathartically reflects, the individualism is viewed as potentially a threat to the legitimacy of the state, mm -hmm. right? And so anti-conformity in the 50s and 60s becomes a possible route for some Frankfurt School theorists, particularly Marcuse, of emancipation, right? Now... What ends up happening with that individualism, it becomes the basis for the right-wing movement in the 80s. It becomes the basis for Reaganism and Thatcherism. But 20 years prior to that, in the 60s, this individualism looks emancipatory because of the extent to which the middle capitalist state is heavily culturally conformist, right? And so the thought here is that if we get people to be more individualistic and nonconformist and more diverse, then it will be harder for the state to reflect a culture at them that will be satisfying. There will be more antagonism, more sense of alienation from the state and the cultural sphere, and that might become a vehicle for economic change, right? But notice how it's all now about what's going on psychologically. It's all about what's going on culturally and the state's relationship to individuals in the cultural space. And now the nation state and nationalism is being pitted against individualism, right? Hmm. So if you go back to when we were doing Weber and Hegel and Kant and Fichte, right? The nation state was creating this space for expression. And the mature individual would then support the state because they'd recognize that the state gave them that space for expression. That's the early capitalist 19th century, right? As you move into middle capitalism in the interwar and postwar eras, what happens is that the nation state becomes totalizing and the national culture gets rid of that space for choosing among lots of different values. 
but it gives you a feeling of autonomy through the catharsis of seeing your values, if you've adopted the values that the state is advancing, expressed in a viscerally powerful way, right? As we start to move out of that middle capitalist period into the individualism, which will mark the neoliberal era, as we start to move out into this transition period, now the individual is not interested in getting together with civil society organizations or states. Now the individual is interested in atomization and the sovereignty of the individual as such. So we start getting right-wing libertarianism. We get a kind of rebirth of anarchism. Left and right varieties of these things. But what they share in common is this emphasis on the individual and the distinctiveness of the individual and the need for the whole system to justify itself to the individual, treated as a kind of essential pre-political unit. Right? Now that movement has taken you know, liberal nationalism, which previously ran together real nice and smooth, and created a split. But what you have then in the nationalists and in these individualistic liberals, uh, you end up with two different species of what was formerly the same thing, operating together in society at once, where one says autonomy is the group or the nation acting in a cathartic way, and you experience autonomy through the agency of feeling part of that group action, or the individualistic narrative, which says your autonomy comes from not being interfered with by the state or by civil society in any way and being able to live in an atomized condition, right? So you have on the one side conformism and the other side atomism, and those both become cultural critiques. So more recently, a lot of people writing in this critical theory vein have focused on atomization in the neoliberal era as the new kind of thing which culturally uh, our states and our civil societies are doing to us, right? So you, you have a different discrete psychological affliction, which is then supposed to be the basis for resenting the social order and for potentially challenging it. So previously you were bothered by the conformity and you start to break out of the conformity. And as you break out of the conformity, you break out of the state's domination of the culture. And that throws the state's legitimacy into question. That's the kind of late Frankfurt School, Mark Hughes, middle capitalist narrative. And in the more recent narrative, it's, it's the atomization, the disconnection from social ties and from other people that causes you to be upset and causes you to uh, view the state as illegitimate, right? But the issue is, as we saw in the mid-century period, as the individualism came back, capitalism was able to appropriate that individualism very easily and construct a new kind of capitalist system, which still contains some of the decaying elements of that middle capitalist post-war settlement, but which has been able to seamlessly incorporate a lot of individualist ideology in place of the conformism, right? And what we have now is a culture where the conformist culture is the culture of individualism. Right. Mm. So we have the kind of mid-century conformity, but the mid-century conformity is based around ostensibly diversity, individualism and everybody being uh, distinct and special. Right. And so in this way, individualism and conformity have come back together. And in this way, the apparent argument, the apparent conflict between nationalism and individualistic liberalism has come 
has has gone away again, and these things have come back into the same thing. But they're yeah. now together in a way which is much more stultifying than the kind of unity originally imagined by, say, Hegel or Kant or Fichte or Weber, because the state is much, much more all-encompassing as a totality now than it was in the 19th century. Hmm. Right? And so, yeah, what looks like a possible way out becomes the path by which the thing is all reinscribed. Hmm. Right. And so you know, now when people are talking about atomization, the question is, is that, you know, actually a meaningful path out of this or does this create a new cultural line along which the thing can be realigned? And I think one of the points that I made last week about how when you're talking about contradictions within capitalism, it's very relevant whether those contradictions are resolvable within capitalism or actually fundamental to the productive process. Oh, yes. Yeah, the right? Because if it's just absolute, a cultural yeah. contradiction, right? If it's just a cultural contradiction, it may be possible to resolve that contradiction within capitalism. And capitalism is very creative and generative in this way. It's very dynamic and it likes to take on new forms. And that's one mm. of the things Marx himself praised about it, that it's mm. very, very generative, right? Yeah. And so those apparent ideological or political theory contradictions are resolvable, at least for a period of time, yeah. by some new synthesis. And of course, then there will be a new antagonism that's generated by that synthesis. But it's not obvious that these are an escalating series of antagonisms that eventually lead to collapse. It might just be that the thing is very adaptable and can deal with a lot of these different problems. The yeah. thing that it wouldn't be able to deal with would be actual fettering an actual situation in which the employer-employee relationship stopped being a sensible utilitarian basis for a society. Yes, if it actually yes. became the case that that fundamental productive relationship no longer made sense within the logic of, of utility and instrumental reason, yes. then instrumental reason would turn against capitalism. And yes. that would be the kind of contradiction which would actually make it impossible for capitalism to adapt. But these other contradictions that theorists tend to find in the culture or in the ideology or in the ideas, these are often resolvable, at least temporarily. And all you need is a series of temporary solutions. You don't need a permanent, all-encompassing solution. No state or society, which has heretofore existed to my knowledge, has achieved a permanent solution to antagonism. What you get is layers upon layers of plaster, of sticking plaster. And you just have to come up with a new way of fixing it. It's like a highway. Yeah, the highway would, if left to its own, uh, if left alone, it would degrade over a couple of years and become undrivable. But if you just keep patching the highway over and over, you don't have to build a new highway and you never have to make the highway perfect. No matter how much road work is done, it's, it's still the same highway. And that's kind of how this, how this system has tended to evolve. Now, if you look at Habermas, Habermas is another curious figure who thinks he's kind of found his way out. And Habermas argues that there's a kind of natural development in our culture where gradually over time, the only kinds of societies which are legitimate culturally to people are the kinds of societies which would produce something eventually approximating the right kind of democratic socialism. 
So Habermas argues that there's a kind of benevolent cultural evolution occurring where eventually institutions have to conform to certain democratic values and that those democratic values will eventually produce results which go in a more socialist direction. It's a kind of moral, institutional, and legitimation progress narrative. Progress narrative, right? Now, if you buy that argument, then this is all going to have a happy ending. But if we look at Habermas's own institutional recommendations during his life, the things that Habermas has tried to use as vehicles for this have tended to not work the way that he theorized. Now, Habermas, of course, coming alongside the Euro-communists of the 90s, because Habermas has, is still alive and lives a long time. So while he's in the late Frankfurt School, he's also still working. Um, and this you know, Euro-communism, the idea that you can use the European Union to construct the right kind of deliberative space for progress to occur in moral thinking, and that that will enable uh, some kind of gradual transition to something better. In reality, the European Union has produced a lot of antagonisms because it's structured in such a way that it often pits states against each other, and that reifies and contributes to Europeans feeling like they are part of different peoples and different states. So whereas Eurocommunism is pitched as a way of using the European structures to create a unifying European self-understanding and to use that as a vehicle for moving things in Europe to the left, what we instead get is a structure which is ostensibly about uniting Europe, which keeps Europe divided by keeping Europeans thinking in terms of their state's interests and how their states are being thwarted by other states within what is essentially a confederal system. Hmm. Uh, and I think that became very clear post-2008 in the Euro crisis and in the series of conflicts that we've had in Europe uh, over the last 10 years. Um, hmm. But it's, it's interesting how there, there are these attempts to get out now that come out of the late Frankfurt School that increasingly look at ways the culture could evolve or, or problems in the culture that capitalism seems to struggle to solve. And the reality, of course, is that in many cases, capitalism is able to adapt in ways which overcome those cultural problems or the institutions that appear to be potential solutions to those problems instead um, make those problems worse or keep them around. Mm. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, I guess yeah. the way in which the early Frankfurt School can help us here is the emphasis on the political economy. There is a debate among the early Frankfurt School writers about what aspects of the political economy were most important uh, for Pollock um, in his argument about state capitalism. It was uh, power rather than a profit that was driving the new authoritarianism, whereas for Franz Neumann, it was more of a process that was uh, coming from capitalist society rather than the uh, modern state. And of course, uh, there may well be a way of synthesizing these perspectives together by saying that the authoritarian state is um, develops a lot of capacity, um, but does so while being instrumentalized um, by capital. Um, but the thing that unifies uh, all these early Frankfurt school writers, really, um, Horkheimer, um, Pollock, um, 
Neumann is the emphasis on political economy. Um, that they share with earlier Marxists, this emphasis on political economy is the driver. And there is that emphasis that continues into the later Frankfurt School. Um, but there is, perhaps one could argue, uh, say with Habermas, um, perhaps a downplaying of the causal uh, power, uh, the causal sovereignty of political economy. Um, and perhaps in a way, uh, we could say that if Marxism has... Uh, often been um, characterized as reducing um, politics to economics, whereas with the early Frankfurt School, um, a form of political analysis did have to come in in order to make sense of the uh, authoritarian uh, capitalist state. Uh, culture became the focus from the mid to late Frankfurt School, partly because it needed to be, because it is worth looking at the cultural effects of the political economy. Uh, but when culture gets allocated some kind of autonomous causal role, um, that perhaps leads to a problem um, because we forget that culture is itself explained in terms of political economy in the end. Well, I think that these theorists themselves continued to view capitalism, the economic system, as the sovereign cause yes, yes. mediated through these other things. I think Habermas and Marcuse still continue more or less to view it that way. The issue is that in the United States in particular, at a lot of American universities, they don't have you read Marx and read all of this Marxism before you read the Frankfurt School theorists. They start you off with Frankfurt School theorists to familiarize you with critical theory. And because a lot of the students are reading these critical theorists without having read earlier Marxist theorists, uh, and because these critical theorists are talking a lot about psychology and culture, the students don't pick up on the earlier arguments and begin using words like, uh, especially recently, neoliberalism, as if they were cultural concepts. Uh, when we talk about neoliberalism from a Marxist standpoint, if we're talking about culture, it would be the culture which comes out of a discrete set of economic things, which uh, policies which make up the neoliberal era, right? So if we talk about what the neoliberal era is, it would be a period of greatly enhanced capital mobility, a period where there's a race to the bottom on taxes, trade, wages, regulations, a period where you know, monetary policy is used more aggressively to make up for uh, things that can't be done through fiscal policy. There are uh, a period of increasing technocracy and increasing treatment of the economy as a non-political sphere. There are different kinds of public policy elements or, or core commitments, you know, an emphasis on privatization, for instance, uh, that people could have when they talk about the neoliberal era. And there's usually a suite of things. It's a suite of economic things that people are talking about when they're intelligently talking about neoliberalism. But a lot of the time in academic work now, neoliberalism is used as if it were a cultural ideology, first and foremost, with no reference being made to how this culture comes out of the discrete economic arrangement that is supposed to be referred to. And so this leads to a lot of sloppy critical theory from contemporary people who are not steeped in the Marxism. And don't get it, don't, don't know about it, in many cases haven't read it, mm. uh, and they're trying to construct an argument purely on the basis of late critical theorists. And they're appropriating those theorists' work oftentimes in ways which serve as contemporary liberal capitalist projects yeah. with no self-awareness about the fact that they're doing that. 
Uh, and I think in particular, Habermas and Marcuse are two that are frequently, frequently abused in this way yeah. by, yeah. by contemporary authors in the United States. And uh, they certainly, I think, would and do have strenuous objections. I mean, Marcuse is dead at this point, but would, I, would in the case of Marcuse, do in the case of Habermas, have strenuous objections to the use of this kind of theory to defend uh, different kinds of capitalist adaptation. And so what I think we're very often starting to see now is this rhetoric of critical theory used to advance new kinds of cathartic culture, which play that cathartic role in the modern state, that the space where there's catharsis as a way of distracting from the lack of any kind of economic change or progress for the ordinary person, and indeed the continued running down of the ordinary person's living standard. And a lot of this stuff has been used to construct new kinds of value sets, which can then be cathartically impressed. Mm. And I think a lot of what, what's called woke neoliberalism fits into this category. A lot of kind of woke signaling, which has a cathartic effect on a lot of professionals and university educated people, but which isn't actually aiming at the economic system in any meaningful way and is mainly functioning as a way of allowing the state to seem committed to progressive values without having to actually pay for any change that costs anybody any money. Yeah. Uh, yeah. And that is something that I don't think the Frankfurt School theorists themselves would approve of. And I think that um, when we talk about uh, one of the great things about the Frankfurt School is its constant attentiveness to ways in which the political economy is changing and therefore our need to continue to think about things differently as it changes, which is why, for instance, on the last episode, I introduced this idea that we, we still live under a kind of overhang of middle capitalism, that we haven't fully transitioned to late capitalism, but we're in an in-between space, mm. right? Where mm. a lot of the, the ideas and, and institutions and systems of middle capitalism have not yet entirely degraded yeah. And have not yet entirely been replaced, right? Yeah. The, the, and yeah. it's very relevant that we're, you know, whether you're in that space or not in it, because the Frankfurt School theorists are going, hey, we're not in early capitalism anymore. We're in this other thing, right? Which I've been calling middle capitalism. And in a similar way, we have to recognize that we're not in middle capitalism anymore. Now, that doesn't mean that we're in late or in the next stage of it yet, but we are... There are ways in which our situation is now profoundly different from the 50s and 60s. There are still some overhangs from the 50s and 60s that make it feel similar. And this attentiveness to what's concretely going on and shaping our ideas and shaping the way that we talk about this stuff, the Frankfurt School's continued commitment to rethinking and reconsidering those categories and how the current economic situation influences the kind of politics and culture that we have, mm. that's very essential if you want to make any kind of constructive use of this whole branch of political theory. Yeah. And if you get mired in trying to take a perspective that comes from early capitalism or middle capitalism, and you try to transplant that into the contemporary period, it's not going to fit. It won't go. It's trying to square, uh, to jam a square peg into a round hole. As the political economy changes, the ways in which we have to approach this also change. And so while these ideas are interesting to help us get a sense for how people living at the time think about that transition from early capitalism to middle 
and for what middle capitalism might allow uh, and for what it, how it might go. It's also worth pointing out how it actually went and how what we got in the 80s, 90s, 2000s and 10s and now the 20s is quite, quite different from emancipation through individualism. It's individualism being appropriated and reinscribed. Hmm. Those hippies, all you know, the hippies who who uh, loved Marcuse and read him, they all became Reaganites. Well, not all of them, but a lot of them did. Certainly, enough of them did for Reagan to win. Hmm. I, I guess there's also. And unfortunately for us, Marcuse had died just before Ronald Reagan. He died, I think, in 1978 or 79. Hmm. Uh, I think it was 79, yeah. just before. That era began, so we don't get right. to hear from Marcuse on that. But I think, as we've seen with Habermas, the attempts to continue to rationalize some kind of way in which this can turn out the way that the Frankfurt School intended, um, mm. I don't. I don't think that they they are looking very good in twenty twenty, as as the argument would have been different in the nineties or before two thousand eight when it wasn't evident how the European project was going to turn out. At least not evident to everyone. Yeah, but. At this point, it's very hard to see how the European Union is going to lead to some kind of, of socialism without some kind of very, very large institutional revision. Hmm. Yeah. One concept, I think, from Habermas that is worth picking out is the idea of the uh, colonization, as he puts it, of system, sorry, of life world by system, uh, where, the, uh, where the economic system um, concerned with uh, this raw uh, instrumental uh, rationality colonizes the life world. And I think there are, there are a couple ways of putting this. One is by arguing that the life world is, is culture and what's being colonized is culture. Um, but uh, as We've talked about in the past, and if, as if you've made, as you've noted before, Benjamin, in a sense, the culture is always the expression of the political economy because we always have material needs which need to be met, and those needs tend to precede uh, uh, our grand uh, moralizations about why uh, a particular political economic situation is right or wrong, uh, and so. I think a perhaps more interesting way of framing the colonization uh, metaphor is by suggesting that the economic system is, um, according to the account of the uh, early Frankfurt School, if we apply Habermas's metaphor back, uh, the economic system is colonizing the political system and the political uh, loses any autonomy because it becomes merely the expression of uh, economic imperative. Um, and of course, the ideal of the state that we get um, from Aristotle is a state that balances different um, material needs, economic and military, in order to create the balanced space for uh, the activity of the soul, for the arts, for philosophy. Um, but the vision of politics that we get um, 
emerging in the 20th century, uh, according to the Frankfurt School's account of authoritarianism, it is a state that is unable to completely balance different needs because it has become obsessed by one need, which is the profit motive. Uh, I think in this sense, um, there's been an argument about uh, in the debate between uh, Neumann uh, and Pollock in the early Frankfurt School, Pollock emphasizing the role of power over profit, Neumann emphasizing the extent to which the authoritarian state is still very much driven by profit. Uh, there are some who argue uh, that recent history, um, there's uh, one academic, Damien Valdez, who argues that uh, Ian Kershaw's history of Nazism in a sense, um, while balancing uh, Neumann and Pollock, uh, to some extent validates Neumann because the Nazi state is still, was still very much driven by the profit motive and driven by uh, the need to maintain uh, the, in, the, the integrity of domestic capital. Uh, and perhaps it goes back to Frankel's point that what's happened is that uh, politics has become all about culture, while uh, law has been framed as the rule of the economy. And, and so we get this polarity between um, an, an economic legal system and a political culture system, uh, uh, polarity between, on the one hand, profit and law, and on the other hand, power and culture. And uh, profit is framed as an area where power does not apply, and um, power is framed as an area where, which is entirely cultural. Uh, the the uh, normative state on the one hand, and the prerogative state on another. But as Frankel points out, the cultural prerogative state is merely the expression of, or the shell of the uh, of the needs of the economic normative state, because, uh, as he puts it, the uh, substantial irrationality of this political culture is just an expression of the functional rationality of the market. Still. And I feel that the, the commonality between uh, the admittedly very varied, varied states of capitalism from the 20th century to the present day, and indeed from the 19th century to the present day, is that we've seen how, despite changes to the selective pressures on states and classes, what still holds true is that we are not able to have that Aristotelian politics because politics has been identified with culture and uh, economics has been framed as this eternal law-like area where politics does not apply. And in this sense, politics is, it is lost because politics is not able to play a balancing role as it's just straightforwardly identified with culture. And that's the commonality in a way between uh, the authoritarian state uh, of warring capitalism and the libertarian state of trading capitalism. Uh, the commonality is that politics in both cases is framed as purely cultural and is framed as not having much to do with the economy. I guess that's caveated by the fact that in warring capitalism, the state is there to manage 
the needs of warfare and to defend its territorial uh, integrity. Um, but in neither and, and case, part of drawing those barriers, right? Yeah. Part of drawing that that line is to make it so that we. It's much harder to allege that cultural phenomena have economic causes, because if cultural phenomena are framed as the result of political power struggle, then the argument people want to make is that the kind of culture that we have is the output of that power struggle. And mm -hmm. so they want to ascribe all kinds of power to individual politicians or speakers or cultural movements, because to acknowledge that the economic influences the cultural would create an argument for altering the economic, to intervene in the economic for the purposes of inter intervening in the cultural. And since we've mm. said that power is comes through the intervention in the cultural, to acknowledge any causal relation between those two things would mean that we would have to, again, reintegrate economics into the political and think of it as a total system. Uh, the reluctance to do that stems in large part from the fact that you know, if you did that, you'd threaten the interests of rich people. Uh, but also, it's essential to the catharsis, because for the catharsis to be catharsis, you have to confuse the cultural action with getting real results. And if the culture, to some degree, is influenced by the economy, then the catharsis would be divorced even from real results in the cultural sphere. Right. So if the economy really does, in a significant way, shape the culture, then, say, getting you know, Trump or Biden or whoever elected uh, would not have nearly the same level of influence over cultural development as we suppose when we say, well, we have gotten the state to reflect the, our culture and therefore we are winning and therefore we are shaping the culture in the way that we want because the state is possessed by our group and our culture and will therefore crush and eliminate the other groups and cultures which threaten ours. Uh, once we realize that actually the cultures that we have come out of the economic system to a significant degree, then we realize that this screaming match uh, doesn't actually have the effect that we think it has mm. and that it's all this kind of prolonged sideshow. And indeed, it needs to continue to exist. No one can win that cultural antagonism because if it were won, then it would cease to be an effective sideshow. So it mm. needs to keep going. And that means that there will always be found new ways of redrawing that line. So even if you win some kind of fleeting cultural victory, uh, A, that cultural victory will often have a lot more to do with the economy than you realize and with changes in economic trends than you realize. But also B, uh, it will immediately result in a new line being drawn somewhere else. Mm. And it has, to, it has to go that way because of the role on, on this model from from, uh, uh, that, that you've that you've suggested mm. it, it has to go this way because otherwise the catharsis is lost and the catharsis is the means of distraction mm. yeah yeah and in this way the sil you know what we talk about is the silver and the bronze right so the interest in material benefit and the interest in status or reputation these things i think part of the trouble is that these things don't like to be separated from each other. Mm, yeah. People yeah. want status to be linked to material reward, and people want material reward to be linked to status, because oftentimes people want more than one of these things at once. And mm. so you have, on the one side in, in the modern state, people who make a bunch of money, and on the other side, people who are 
well regarded. Mm. But they don't very often, there are exceptions, but they don't very often end up being the same people. Mm. And so there's a kind of materially irrelevant status game that's played in our society among celebrities and a socially irrelevant wealth game that's played among oligarchs. And these yeah. two things rarely intersect. Mm. And I think that's frustrating to celebrities and to very rich people. And you think about Kanye recently and his complaint about how musicians are denied the rights to their uh, music. And why are these producers who nobody uh, or uh, owners of record companies who nobody's ever heard of, why are they receiving all this money? If Kanye gets the, the recognition and they get the money. Mm. Yeah, yes. And yes. I, yeah, one of the things that I think frustrates both the celebrities and the oligarchs is the extent to which they can't have both at once because of that wall that we've drawn up between the two things. Yes, yes. The two kinds of competition which run parallel to each other, the competition for money and the competition for influence. Right. And, and the influencer never has enough money and the rich person never has enough influence. Right. I, this reminds me of uh, Nancy Fraser's concept in uh, Capitalism, A Conversation in Critical Theory, uh, which, as the name suggests, is uh, taking up that critical theory tradition uh, which the uh, Frankfurt School, um, in some senses, uh, originates. And, and Fraser argues that uh, institutional divisions uh, under capitalism are characterized by uh, division, dependence, and disavowal. So there is a division between, um, uh, say, uh, politics and the and the economy, uh, which is as we're arguing, is a division between uh, cultural um, politics and a strictly legal and rational economy, a totally irrational culture and a totally rational um, economy. Uh, that division is not simply a division because the. Um, uh, there is a relation of dependence to there because the culture exists in order to uh, defend the economy. The culture doesn't have autonomy here. It's being used by the economy to defend uh, the system. To, so the life world is being used to defend the system in that Habermasian uh, framing. And Nancy Fraser herself rejects the base superstructure distinction, it must be noted, uh, so wouldn't necessarily go this far. Um, but uh, the, the, the last part of the claim that Nancy Fraser makes is that there is a disavowal of the economy by culture. So the reason why uh, Marxism is quite puzzling um, for uh, those of a more liberal inclination is that uh, liberalism is about making politics about culture, not about the economy. The economy, that's not a domain of power. That's the domain of law. And politics is a domain of culture. Economics is rational. Politics, well, that's pure sentiment, isn't it? It's pure affect, pure aesthetic. Um, and it, it, this division um, has to be denied. Um, despite the fact, 
or perhaps because of the fact that it is so crucial um, for the maintenance of this system to separate between uh, these two domains, to separate between material need and social need, to separate, as Benjamin has put it, between Plato's uh, bronze uh, need uh, for material gain and the silver need for social recognition. Uh, and this division is quite difficult to manage. I mean, the way in which Nancy Fraser tries to manage it is to say that, well, we need to fight on both fronts. We need to fight both on the economic front and on the cultural front. And of course, we can't deny anyone domain. The difficulty comes with creating exactly the right kind of critique, because if we get the uh, cultural critique even slightly wrong, then it would risk just decaying into culture war. Uh, and that seems to be one of the biggest problems at the moment, that it, in making politics about culture, we lose the ability to talk about the economy because it's so much easier um, for uh, liberals to reply to Marxists by continuing that cultural discussion. Uh, if there isn't that kind of focus relentlessly on the economic conditions of social life, then it will just be so, so easy for any uh, politics uh, which critiques the status quo to just become uh, any normal liberal politics, which is the same politics um, in a sense, or at least the structurally analogous politics we get both in the authoritarian state and in the libertarian state of modernity, which is a politics which is thoroughgoingly cultural. Uh, yeah, if catharsis buys space for a status quo, then any critique which results in catharsis results in the status quo. Mm. I think that would be the simplest yeah. way of putting it. And you know, many many spiritual people like to say, uh, if a cause, uh, if there's a cause and effect, you don't have two events; you really have one. Uh, yeah. If the economy affects the culture, yeah. or the culture affects the economy, you don't have two systems. You don't have a public and private. You have one. Yeah. You really have yeah. one unity, which has been artificially bifurcated. Right. Uh, right. You know, and those bifurcations and divisions sow confusion. Mm. Right. Right. Because the divisions are false divisions, but they are also mm -hmm. divisions. <laughs> Yeah, it, it's, a, it's a false disunity, and disunity is false, but nonetheless, it's a disunity that has to be attended to, that has to be managed, and that perhaps has to be overcome in order to create a truer unity. Um, yeah. Because yeah. as long as there is in practice this disunity in the way that people think about these things, any attempt to act on the economy through the culture will run into the wall between culture and economy, which has been erected. Mm. And that has been erected in order to defend the economy. <laughs> in order to defend the economy yeah. from any form of political change. Right, yes. right. And so to, to make the economy political would be to tear down that boundary. Yeah. Because that would be to admit the economy back into the realm of the political, back into the realm of being something that is contestable. Uh, and that would be to tear down the wall between the two. Functioning in the cultural space often reifies that wall by accident. It, it strengthens or makes it seem more real by accident. And uh, when it doesn't do that, it, it doesn't tear the wall down at any rate. Uh, something has to be done to tear the wall down or politics will continue to be very discursive and very distracting from the long-term trends which slowly but surely continue to flow in one direction. Mm. 
Hmm. Anyway, I think we, we've just come up to about an hour and a half, and I think this is a good place to, to cut it for today. Uh, we've had uh, some requests to add uh, reading lists. So on, on the Patreon, if you follow us at uh, patreon.com slash political theory 101, all lowercase no space, uh, I am going to start putting reading lists for people who follow us closely out there. And of course, if you want to support the show, do feel free. Uh, we do give out Q&A episodes to supporters of the show. Uh, we don't do them all the time, but we are committed to doing at least a couple of them every calendar year, and we are probably going to do another one in December. So uh, if you would like to support the show or get your question potentially answered on air, uh, do feel free. Uh, outside of that, I think that's it for today. So thanks for listening, guys. Have a wonderful rest of the day. Thanks, everyone. Bye-bye. Bye.